magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you Hi everyone, it's Robin again. I had the opportunity to work one-on-one with Jane Pike from Confident Rider recently, and it was in a time of need. I was uh, having a pretty bad panic attack, and I called her kind of like an SOS, and uh, she stepped up and helped me. And what I wanted to do was get her on the podcast and have her explain the steps that she took with me. We were on a Zoom, you know, I could see her. So there were there were some things that she did with me that helped bring me back from from the panic attack. And I wanted to share the steps that she did and the reasons why it worked with everyone because I thought it was super helpful. Um, some background on what was happening. About a year ago, I had a tumor in my femur found by accident, and all the testing had proved that or indicated that it was benign, and they started calling it a lesion, which was a lot better. So I had a checkup. So that happened in January 2020. Um, I had a checkup in April 2020. It looked the same. So they told me that I could have a checkup nine months from then, which ended up being January 2021. So a year from when they first saw it, um, again, totally by accident. And so I think what happened was, you know, even though everything was fine, and it all looked good. Last year, you know, I had nine months to really not think about it. But I guess I was thinking about it somewhat. And then when I needed to have my checkup in January, my appointment was for the 25th. And I went to get the x-ray done on the 5th, which probably should have been done a little bit later because that gave me a couple weeks to think, not think about it. (laughs) And um, so I'm thinking that had something to do with the panic attack that I had on the day that I had my appointment. And there were a couple interesting things about that. So I didn't believe I was, you know, I I thought that everything would be fine. I saw, you know, the x-ray that they took and I compared it to my last one and I couldn't see any difference. Um, But it was at slightly a different angle. So, you know, if I really wanted to think negatively, I could have because I'm, you know, maybe it did look a little different, but it was probably just the angle. So, you know, those thoughts went through my head. I think I did a pretty good job most of the month not really thinking about it. Then the day before my appointment, I started having some negative thoughts and, you know, worry about what if, what if, what if. I did, you know, some yoga, some meditation, trying to get it under control, and I felt fine and I slept fine that night. Um, my appointment was uh, at about 10.30 on um, the Monday morning on a video conference. And so that morning I did yoga, did a meditation, but I was pretty anxious. Um, 
And I got on the call a few minutes early. I guess it was at 1040. So I got on the call at 1035. She didn't get on until uh, 11. So, you know, 25 more minutes of just kind of holding my breath and wondering what she was going to say. When she came on the line, she greeted me and said, how are you? And I said, I don't know. How am I? And she said, you're perfect. It hasn't changed in one year. It looks exactly the same. And so, of course, I was relieved and, um, you know, I was grateful and all of that. And so she said I could I could have I could either wait and see if I ever had symptoms to have another x-ray or I could do it in a year. And so kind of where I left it was I'll I'll kind of just wait and see cuz the stress of it you know outweighs maybe the benefit of it. I don't know. So that's a wait and see for me. So a couple things happened right before she got on. I felt this really weird interesting pain in my chest, and I just kind of dismissed it. But afterwards, I went out to try to, you know, get on with my day, I let all my people know that everything was fine. And I went out to ride Oscar, and I started having this chest pain again. And then my mind went to the, I'm having a heart attack, I need to go to the hospital. Um, but it's COVID. So what should I really go to the hospital? And then my panic, it just kind of took over into a panic attack where, you know, all those things happen. I, it didn't happen as bad as my panic attacks used to be. Like I didn't get the ear closing and the, you know, all of that. It was just, I just felt like I couldn't get my mind under control and, um, my heart rate was up and I was just feeling like, I was crawling in my skin. And so I tried to ride and see if that helped. And I figured it wasn't fair to Oscar. He was doing his best to help me. Um, But I got off and I texted my friend Jane Pike from Confident Rider, who I'm so blessed that she is a friend that I can do this with because she has lots of tools other than being, you know, that's not why she's my friend, but um, but it just so happens that she does have these great tools that she could help me with. So I, I texted her and I said, hey, I had a really stressful morning. You know, I had my leg appointment and everything's fine, but I feel like I'm either having a heart attack or a panic attack. And I said, this is totally normal, right? You know, thinking that it was all of the suppressed energy needing to liberate itself. And so logically, I knew what was happening. I knew that I needed to discharge this this energy. And my first thought was, well, I should go for a run. And then I'm like, well, no, I'm having a heart attack, so I can't go for a run. So that's a really bad idea. So anyway, luckily, Jane um, said, hey, do you have time for a call? And I said, oh, yes, please. And so she got me on, on Zoom and she walked me through this sequence of coming back to my body, but in a very uh, delicate and humane way that was super effective. And she even mentioned, you know, I said I was going to just go for a run or jump to, you know, do the shaking. And she's like, no, that probably would have been too much at that point in time. And so she explained in our discussion after that I've recorded for you, um, you know, the steps that she took and why she took them, plus just a ton of more information that um, will be helpful for anybody. 
And I just would love for you to listen to this. And I hope that it resonates as it did with me and, and know that, um, the rest of the day was, you know, that day I felt so much better. I didn't go to the hospital. I wasn't having a heart attack. Um, she brought me back to myself and, um, I am forever grateful for her and, uh, walking me through what she did. So please enjoy this conversation with, uh, Miss Jane Pike. Well, I am now here with Miss Jane, and she is going to um, walk us through what she did in real time with me when I called her <laughs> desperate, almost going to the hospital. And she totally facilitated me um, back to, I don't know, you can tell me what you facilitated me back to, but <laughs> I just want to I think it's, <laughs> I, I think it will be super helpful for people to to hear the process that you took me through and you know what what we did and why it worked and yeah I would just love it for you to 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 walk us through totally and would it be okay to start out with a bit of background understanding as to what might happen to kind of precipitate something like this or um, because I think that so many of us right now, um, horse-related and otherwise, are finding ourselves in much more activated states than we might have uh, identified with previously. And when I'm talking about activation, I'm talking about like uh, more energy, more kind of feeling, more sensation in the system that precipitates us towards sympathetic activation, if you think of it like that. So um, like I said, lots of us are identifying right now with being more anxious than we previously might have understood ourselves. And part of that reason is because our nervous system is really primed to respond to localized threat. So what I mean by that is, you know, if I'm out in the um, in the wilderness and we'll use the old saber-toothed tiger example or the lion example, I can see something on the horizon that my nervous system gears me towards. And as a consequence of that, I'm able to mobilize myself in order to, in whatever way is appropriate for the moment to get myself to safety. So in that situation, there's something on the outside of me that's identifiable that I can orient myself towards, I can put my focus towards and I can make decisions based on what I need to do in order to get myself to a safe place, right? So hopefully what happens at the end of that is that I've ridden that wave of activation. That's what we would call that sympathetic energy entering the system. The a physiological response goes alongside of that. So we have the adrenaline, the cortisol, everything that comes with being able to move away from what it is that we're afraid of or even like face up to what it is that we're afraid of if we're talking about the fight response. And then on the other side of that, in a in what we would consider to be a healthy or a regulated system, we would ride that wave back down to a balanced baseline. So there would be a discharge of the energy and we would come back down with the settling to a place where we're like, okay, that's gone and now I'm back in the present moment. In situations such as COVID and the likes, we don't have 
a localized threat. The threat feels like it's all around us. So all of us are in this situation where we're much more switched on. We're much more highly activated because we're not sure what it is that might be out there that will cause us concern or alarm. And we're also getting lots of feedback from the news, from social media, from different, you know, different people around us that's triggering our nervous system to feel alarmed. And so in my experience, what I'm seeing in my work and what I've also felt myself is that we're just sitting at a much higher baseline. We're not in a place that we would consider to be perhaps as settled as we might normally have understood. And so when we have something that comes on top of that, that might um, activate us a little more, then we find ourselves really easily moving up the, the channels of sympathetic activation to a stage that we either might not have experienced previously like panic and or it, it feels more exacerbated or more exaggerated than perhaps we, we've been um, in before for that reason. Does that make sense? So the, the other thing that it's important to understand about anxiety is that we're, there, there are various levels of anxiety, right? So the, the nervous system model that I base my understandings of um, is one called the window of tolerance. And basically when we're inside our window of tolerance or when we're inside our window of capacity, we feel like we've got this, like we're, we're able to contain the emotion and energy within the edges of our skin and we can ground and center in the midst of that, which means we're intentional about how we direct what it is that's going on. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that it might not really challenge us, but we still feel like we have a sense of agency in the midst of, of that experience. Now, anxiety in and of itself is a flight response. So we're trying to move away from something. And typically what will, ha will happen is we'll have a little bit of worry or concern. So that's an example of that little bit of sympathetic activation coming into the system. And then there's levels of that that take us further up the sympathetic chain all the way through to panic and then a different level of kind of shutdown and what we might identify as collapse depending on how far through the, through the continuum that we, got, we get to. When we are in that place, we're really operating from the smoke alarm part of our part of our brain. So when we're inside the, our window of tolerance, we have access to our higher wisdoming functions. You know, we can, we can logic our way through things. We can reason our way. We can rationalize our way um, into understandings and into different ways of being. But once we get into a level of sympathetic activation, that's more about really uh, making sure that we're safe, that part of our brain goes offline and we're operating from the smoke alarm part of our brain, which is just looking out for threat. And this is where you find people trying to introduce techniques that are more involved to like mindfulness, um, more involved to kind of like thinking your way out of situations, which are um, experientially and also circumstantially not that useful in those situations because you're simply not able to access the part of your brain that would be online in order for those techniques to work. Yeah, so that sort of. So that's one reason why kind of talking yourself out of something or being talked to when you're in that space is is perhaps not that useful. Um, if you have had some kind of previous experience with uh, panic or you, when we talk about panic attacks or anxiety attacks, you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of been part of my, part of my makeup in the past. Um, what can also happen is that we become more sensitized to the sensations of the experience. And as a consequence, they're much easier to set off, meaning that 
when I have a, an experience of panic or I have an experience of anxiety, um, the sensation becomes familiar to me. My brain maps that sensation and starts to develop an association and an understanding of it. And just little examples of that or little experiences of that sensation have taken up so much real estate in my brain that it's very easy for me to switch into that place. So it's like we've primed the neural pathways to get very good at being anxious, if you think of it that way. And we can kind of slip down that slope relatively easily without feeling like we have much option about what happens in between. Um, and in that case, it's like the reference points that we have, like I say, are more highly um, sensitized. They're, they're easier to access. And we, 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 yeah, we slide down that, that slope a little more easily. Is this all making sense so far? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So in the case of um, what we went through the other day or what we were kind of dealing with the other day, um, I think it's also helpful to have an understanding about why things don't work and when. And what what happens when we're in a state of panic it, and it's not related to something that's on the outside that's specifically identifiable. So usually there's a disconnection between what it is we're experiencing on the outside and what's happening within us. The threat is actually an interoceptive or an internal threat, right? So we have a level of sensation in the body that feels really alarming. We might have a decreased breath capacity. So there's like a tightness in the chest or in the throat. We have an increased heart rate. And so all of those things are causing the fight flight response to be activated from in for internal reasons. And so we're setting off that sympathetic activation, but the thing we're trying to escape from is ourself. <laughs> so it, it compounds this cycle that feels like we're trapped within the edges of our skin, like busting to escape, but we don't really have a place to put that energy. And so the panic compounds on itself and so on and so forth. And it's just a really super miserable place to be. So lots of uh, prompts such as focusing on the breath in the first instance can actually exacerbate the feeling because what we're doing is asking the person who is trying to escape their internal world to focus more on their internal world. And so the feeling of perhaps not being able to take a deep breath because the, the actual casing of the body, the way that the fascial container of the body is taking shape is simply just unable to facilitate the body breathing itself in that way. Getting them to focus on mindfulness techniques, like we mentioned previously, the prefrontal cortex and the more rational parts of our brain are not in the building at that point. So again, that exacerbates the feeling of feeling out of control because you can't follow through on the instructions that the other person is uh, giving you. And then also, if we can just understand that like it's predominantly a lack of safety that's happening right now, we don't feel safe inside the edges of our skin, inside what is happening. And so being met with potential feelings of frustration or kind of like, let's just get through this and kind of get on with life is really not helpful because it causes that threat those threat receptors to fire up even more, the fight and flight responses to fire up even more. Basically, the unconscious mechanisms of your brain and body have decided for whatever reason that we may not understand that that was the most necessary place for you to be in to keep you safe. And if we try to forcibly change that from the outside, the unconscious reasoning of our body sees that as more of a threat. They're like, oh, they're trying to contain us. They're trying to change us. And so this escalates and accelerates the feelings that we're having on the inside. So it's really important, I think, to meet these situations with compassion and patience and to also really recognize that this isn't a choice. Like this, someone is not choosing to do this. This is like a really unpleasant way of feeling. And we're not, uh, no one would purposely put themselves 
themselves in that state. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I did a, a webinar recently on the five pieces of advice to avoid when you're experiencing writing-related anxiety and, and uh, this comes in a lot. It's like you can't, someone can't consciously choose that to move out of this because it's not a conscious choice to be in it. So we have to find other ways to kind of get to get to the place that we, um, to a better feeling place basically, yeah. Any questions around that? I, I loved what you said about, um, you know, the breathing and why the breathing. I've thought of this several times. You know, my problem is I'm too much in my body. Mm-hmm. right yeah that's what triggers me is being so when so if you had said just start breathing you know it's like I don't want to be more in my body mm-hmm. I can't be more in my body than I am at the moment yeah <laughs> you know exactly that's, exactly that's I feel like jealous of Warwick who doesn't who is not in his body because I'm in my body all the time 100 yeah. percent yeah 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 that was what you just said that makes that makes sense there's a lot of misconception and as well, I'm, pro- I'm really going against the grain with this and going against some old stuff that I taught as well around what it means to focus on the breath because I think there's a lot of oversimplified discussion about the breath. Like, yes, it's true that the inhalation relates to the sympathetic nervous system. Absolutely, the exhale relates to the parasympathetic nervous system. But what you'll hear point blank over time is focusing on the breath is always the right thing to do or always a good thing to do. And in my experience, it's not. And also this emphasis on really full and deep breathing, the way that the body breathes itself is much more finely tuned than we give it credit for. Meaning that as we're sitting here right now and you and I are in a pretty relaxed place, we're just having a conversation, you're not taking these massive deep belly breaths, right? There's not like a lot of activity that's going on. The, 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 those deep, big breaths are not actually synonymous with a calm and relaxed state, right? They're, they're more likely actually to send us into a place of hyperventilation than they are getting get us back to a state where the body is naturally choosing how the breath needs to be in response to what it is that's happening. So if we can think of it this way, that your unconscious mind is or your brain is always deciding what what is the most appropriate response of the body in conjunction with whatever it is it's involving itself in. And us physically manipulating the breath in many instances actually triggers that sympathetic response because your unconscious brain recognizes that as a threat. Someone's trying to manipulate us out of a decision that we've chosen that we consider to be in our best interest and, again, sends us on that loop. Um, so for me, I'm trying to look at ways that we can, A, honour the decisions of the body and the mind and why it's chosen to be in that place. And then from that situation, how is it that when we can see that there is a disconnect between what it is where the state that we're in right now and the situation that we find ourselves in, like the case of the other day with the panic, how is it that we can actually create a situation where the body chooses itself to renegotiate that in a different format. So a lot of that experience that we're talking about is a hallmark of traumatic stress where we have unresolved uh, experiences of activation where that haven't been able to ride that wave of settling back down. And so we have this stored energy in the system that's looking for a release in some shape or form. So to me, when we think about what it means to be anxious and we think about what it means to be in a place of high activation freeze. So as you go into a place of panic, what what happens is there's like a, there's kind of a locking up of the body. 
And that that is basically based on a decision for the need for containment, right? So everything feels really big in that moment. Like the life feels big, energy feels too big, everything just feels so freaking big. So what we're going to do is we're going to lock down and we're going to make ourselves as small as possible. We're going to contain the energy within as tight frame as possible and we're going to hold ourselves there in the knowledge that we are just teetering on the line of what it is our body is able to hold without having a full explosion, right? So if you think about this in horsey terms, that's where your horse freezes. We feel their body go like concrete. There's the the heart rate thumping through the saddle. And you know in those situations that if you were just to like squeeze or do something, it's going to be too much for what it is that's happening for them because they're in that state of high activation freeze. The outer container of the body is solid. But underneath the surface, there's a huge amount of stored survival energy that's coursing through the system. And so the process that we did the other day was recognizing that, A, what what your body has chosen is the need to keep itself very contained and very still. And the reason for that is that the amount of energy that is underneath it feels so huge that we're not sure how to let that out in a way that that will allow us to contain what it is that's going on, right? So we simultaneously understand that we need to release that energy, that pressure valve needs to be released, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't blow the system because <laughs> we don't want to end up on the moon. And we don't want to end up in a better, you know, in a worse place than we started with. So how we came into it was to go, okay, what we understand about where it is we are right now is that you feel A, unsafe, you've lost a connection of your own self in relation to the world. This experience feels bigger than your skin. So we want to actually just get like a visceral sense of where your boundary is, like where where the edges of your body are, because everything's feeling like up in outer space right now. And so the very first thing we did was just, well, A, I said hi and was like, this is okay. This isn't a predictor of the future. This is just your moment right now. And and we gave ourselves a hug, which is like just taking hold of either side of our arms, giving ourselves a hug, which you know, it might sound a little waffy to start with, but actually there's a real functional purpose for it. It's like, let's feel this container. There is a separation between you and the outside world. Let's come back to you, to let you come back to yourself for a little bit and feel into those edges, feel into the edges of your very visceral boundary. And then from that place, we started tapping. It's a, um, it's one of my favorite things that I teach called a butterfly hug, which is basically if you were to um, give yourself a hug right now and really just um, tap with a hand. I'm looking at myself on the screen, but I know this is just audio. Um, tapping with either si- on either side of the body. Then that also gives us a little bit of a rhythmic cue to feed back into, which the reticular activating system of our brain and the other um, qualities which are really associated to rhythm and, um, and everything else, all that other good stuff that us humans love. Uh, it allows us basically to co-regulate with something outside of ourselves. Now, when we first did this, what was really interesting was Robin did this, the tapping on the arm super fast. It was like tap, 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 tap. And I'm like, oh, it's really curious to just notice how fast you're moving right now, right? Because that's kind of a demonstration of where it feels like the energy's at. It's kind of like coursing through. So there's nothing wrong with that. But what would happen if we were to just slow that tapping down? Would that give you something a little bit more um, you know, rhythmic and measured to, to regulate with and to kind of balance yourself with. So, so that's the first reason for that. The other thing is touch is such a primal way of triggering our social engagement system. 
And when we are in a place of feeling kind of um, outside of ourselves and really concerned about life and, and where it is we're sitting right now, um, the touch that we give, so whether that's giving ourselves a hug or giving someone else a hug, the brain can't tell where that touch is coming from and it cues the body in the same way. So you can really utilise touch to bring yourself back down from places that don't feel very good for you and there will be a response in your system because we're simply wired in for connection that way. So when I talk about the social engagement system, it's one of the facets of polyvagal theory that I've found to be really useful. And it's basically if we're in that place of uh, being offline in terms of like the this higher wisdom part of our brain has left the building temporarily, we're operating from the threat centre, what we want to do is be like, are you, are you with me? Like if I'm having a conversation with you, it's no good if you're not with me, like if you're not vaguely with me. And so what I was interested in doing is doing something, A, that was novel and slightly playful that the brain had no previous association with that was going to cause alarm and B, doing something that would require a degree of connectivity between us. And so what I did was... Um, it's sort of similar to Simon Says, I guess, and things that you would have done at school, which is just mirroring each other. And we're on, we were on Zoom or on FaceTime. So it's like, I'm going to put one hand here and all I want you to do is match me. And so again, you're orienting to, orienting to something on the outside. There's a connection between both of us. I can match my movements for you to move in a very specific way. I can also cross over the midline of the body, which is a really good way of starting to connect up the left and right hemispheres and bring everything back online. And I don't know what you experienced, Robin, but I my observations were even at that point there was a little bit of down regulation. There was a little bit of like coming back to yourself as a consequence of, of doing those two things. Does that is that lining up yeah. for you so far or was I delusional? <laughs> no, you're right. Like when I think back to it, the first, like I had forgotten what we did first. And now that you said it, I remembered. And then, but I do, I re, and I remember telling Warwick after that that part was really great. And, and I, that was the part that I, I, you know, I haven't ever heard about or mm -hmm. if I have forgotten about it, but that was super helpful. Yeah, awesome. That the novelty is really important because if we think about what's happening, and this is very black and white layman's kind of explanation, um, if we think about what's happening, there's a sensation in the body that's actually pretty familiar to you. Like it goes through a, a, a relatively predictable process of feeling that might still feel overwhelming, but it's not unknown to you in some way. And so the brain is kind of clicking into these really predictable ways of responding. We get more and more concerned about it. And there's a super highway of how things are going that we easily click into and flow down. So doing something like that you would do when you were a kid, like getting you to mirror me is like, oh, wait, hang on a minute. Like that's not something I'm familiar with. I really have to concentrate a little bit to do that. And so if you think of anxiety as essentially a distraction, like there's just, you're so distracted with everything you can't focus having to actually like match your movements to someone else allows us to co-regulate together and also brings your focus back into the moment and outside of this kind of like scattered place where it's um calling your attention to um so that's the basis of that um the i'm just trying to think what we did next i'm moving through it in my brain so if we think back to, again, to this idea of what it means to be in a really high state of anxiety or activation, we've got a really armoured outer casing of the body. 
and where the fascial container, this beautiful fascia, which is underneath our skin and over the top of our muscles, gets very tight. And what's interesting to know about how the body structure changes shape in both sympathetic and parasympathetic activation is there's actually a lot of um, different changes which occur, which make it also very difficult for us to breathe in the ways that we might have been instructed. So when we're in a parasympathetic place, the structure of the body moves more horizontally. There are different ways that the body um, allows for movement that mean that we can kind of occupy more space side to side. When we're in a sympathetic state, we're just really designed to locomote forward and back so there's more of a vertical uh, motion that happens so when we go into sympathetic activation the diaphragm which evolutionarily was originally a muscle of um, stability before it was a muscle of respiration actually locks down around the midline of the body and the ribs do as well there's a movement of the rib cage down and around the center and the fascial container of the body gets very tight right and all of this is simply designed for us to be able to protect our vulnerable um, front and get away from what it is that we're needing to get away from in the most uh, efficient fashion possible so if you think about the diaphragms actually much more, uh, I mean, it's not fully static, obviously, but it's, it's in a place that makes it much less pliable and much less movable at that stage, then actually trying to influence that through deep breathing is causing that, again, internal trigger system to get activated and for us to feel more and more concerned. So on the one hand, what we're wanting to do is loosen this fascial container, loosen this armoring and loosen the attachments of the diaphragm so the body can start to breathe itself. And hopefully at the same time, release some of this huge amount of energy that's storing beneath the surface in a way that's manageable and kind of titrates the experience rather than you kind of getting thrown in the deep end and making it worse. And so what we did was a variety of different movements of um, the shoulders and of the trunk and of the torso um, a, that required a little bit of concentration. So, for instance, one shoulder forward, one shoulder back at the same time and then swapping. You can't really do that without um, having to think fully, you know, about what it is that you're doing. But it's a very small movement, uh, movements of the torso, and really just using the principle that smaller movements unlock the ability for us to move in bigger ways over time. And so what we were doing was, yes, meeting the energy where it's at, recognising that there's a big amount of energy. But if I was like, let's dance it out, it would have increased your heart rate. It would have just sent everything into overdrive. And so we went on this kind of continuum uh, of movement, starting with very small, fine motor movements, moving through to bigger movements of the torso in, and ending up in a place where we're shaking and, and um, inviting more vigorous movement to release things physiologically so that, at, over time, that safety prerequisite was in place. You felt like it felt safer to move in bigger ways. And at the same time, we can discharge the energy, which allows the system to, to naturally downregulate from the place that it was in previously. Yeah. Yeah. And that was against, I, I was, if I hadn't thought I was having a heart attack, I was going to go for a run. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that yeah. would be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm down so many rabbit holes with this right now. Um, and 
running is a curious one because after a while, I think it's, I was saying to this, this to you at the time as well, from the studies I've been doing, after you've run three miles, the body automatically clicks into sympathetic because it's like, well, what are we running from? Like, what, what is the purpose behind this? Whereas if you were like running to the shop for a specific purpose, there'd be an understanding that fuels the body's need to express in that way. But when that's not there, it's actually easy to exacerbate the concern faculties that fuel that amount of activity because it's sort of there's a lack of understanding or context there um, for the brain to make sense of it so I think that when we're looking at discharging um, energy or the kind of aftermath of it on the one hand we have this very real physiological response which is there has been a huge amount of adrenaline released that needs to be used up you know that needs to be met in a way that's appropriate and then we have the conscious renegotiation of things which is like right I did meeting yourself with kindness like how is it that I'm going to support myself through this for the rest of the day um understanding this isn't a predictor of the future because I think that can be a real deflation point as well thinking that it's a regression or like this means this is always going to happen or now you're out of control it's like no that was just the moment you know that was that was whatever happened in the moment and it doesn't mean it's going to happen all the time um and so how is it that we can allow gently that release to happen physiologically through like walking or you were saying like water blasting you could do, which is kind of like something out there that has a purpose um, that I think is is a really lovely thing. And also anything, any movement which really doesn't have an outcome in terms of like I'm not pounding the pavement because now I feel like I just want to escape this energy Um it's like how do I move in a way that brings curiosity back to my body that actually is novel in some way so I'm starting to myelinate some new sensory pathways which allow my brain to think about things differently. Um, horizontal movement is very parasympathetic. Like we don't rock from side to side. We don't dance unless we feel like there is a, a safe space for that to happen and we're not escaping something. So if you can think of like just movement for the sake of the enjoyment of movement is a really lovely way to discharge energy. And I think that we're, we've, you know, there are so many things that we've kind of locked into place that form part of like what we should be doing, or this is like more purposeful, or this will mean that I lose weight or like, you know, so on and so forth. It's like a gender focused movement. Um, and so that's part of like, part of the liberation is like what, what's playful, basically, like what's playful, what's, what's novel, what's enjoyable just for the sake of it that will allow me to kind of come back to myself. So feel like I've talked my head off. Sorry. <laughs> That's great. So before we pressed record, I also told you something that we, and then we said, well, we can talk about that too. You know, in the past, this would have, this would have been a complete panic attack. And I didn't get to the point where, you know, those, the extreme symptoms of my ears closing, um, my, you know, like blacking out, I didn't get to that point. Uh, where in the past, you know, that has been the path. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. And you yeah. had some ideas about that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were going to say the tongue thing, which is what I forgot to oh. mention as well. We can get into that too. Yeah, I was like, the tongue thing. Um, <laughs> so, oh, it's in the tongue. So let's, yeah. let's keep that hanging on. We'll yeah, have a yeah. yeah. Um, so, 
sympathetic activation has six or seven different levels. And so we move into it. The first uh, level of sympathetic activation would be the startle response. So like I get, I get a shock from something and then I'm interested or curious to observe what it is that's going on. So maybe I'm sitting here on my chair and a book falls off the bookshelf and I get a shock and that's the sympathetic switch that gets clicked on. Then I'm like, oh, what was that? And I look around and I see that the book's fallen off the shelf and I come back down. So that would be an example of uh, the first level of sympathetic activation. Now, we can move through to the place where sympathetic activation hits level five or six, which means that the only option really to bring ourselves back down before we go into a stage of total collapse is to completely remove ourselves from the situation in question. And if we were to give an example, a writing example, which I know so many people struggle with, it's it's like, oh, my horse spooks at something or they get a shock from something. And I just find I completely cannot reset from that point. And that is until I'm like off or away and then I find myself feeling okay. And the reason for that is that we're so far up the scale of sympathetic activation at that point. And if we think of the pegs to come back down being moving in the opposite direction, that the only option for our system to actually find a point of safety and reset, if you like, is to remove ourselves completely from whatever it is that caused the, the, the alarm in the first place, like the horse spooking. Now, if you're, if you're in a state where, uh, you're, you're more regulated, where there's a more fluid movement, a more appropriate quote unquote movement between parasympathetic and sympathetic activation. And what I mean by appropriate is that there really is no bad place for the nervous system to sit. Like collapse isn't bad, freeze isn't bad, none of these things are bad. It's just that what we want is our nervous system making the choices that are appropriate for the moment. And when it's no longer appropriate, we're able to move out of that place and back to, you know, a settled settled place. And so when we talk about um, your situation, like in the past, where you may have um, found yourself feeling derailed from an experience like this for much longer afterwards, kind of having like a panic attack hangover. (laughs) It would be, in my understanding, because the place that you were sitting prior to that panic attack occurring was much higher than what it is now. So your baseline now is is in a much different position, even though the stresses around you um, are still present, you know, and still high, like there was a lot of stuff going on that contributed to causing this to come to a head. Um, that are all understandable. It's just that the resources that you had, the skills that you had, and the understandings that you had allowed you to contain those at a much earlier stage. And even though they still got to the place where it felt really scary for a moment, you, you, that still, your capacity hadn't been exceeded as early or in the same way as what it might have been previously. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think that's a, a total high five moment as well, right? Like that's a really big deal. So that's, that's my, the work that I've been doing has worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has. And I think it, I got to that point. I should be mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, I, it is working. Yeah, it is working totally. And, and as well, you know, like it's, um, I, I use terms like regulate, dysregulate, settled baseline, you know, all of this stuff, but I also don't want to reduce us to 
uh, systems and mechanisms and like, you know, neuroscience is amazing. Understanding our biology is amazing, but we're also mystery and magic. And there's lots of things about the body and the universe that we don't understand yet. And I think that we have to give ourselves credit in that way and also not seek to reduce ourselves to like a person operating on this nervous system continuum because we, we do exist outside of that zone as well. And so, one of the things I believe that's really important to um, to to do in in any situation, but in this situation as well, is like how do we introduce more wonderment into our day, like in, and into the the period after? It's like oh, that was a big trip that I took, like emotionally right now. And so, what is it that I can do to a support myself, but also introduce more playfulness in? Because playfulness is really the antidote to stress or to concern or to panic and we don't play unless we feel okay about playing and even the mirroring that we did at the start of the session like it's playful right like you think what are we doing and you can even do like Simon Says type things in there and it's a um it's so it's so much more than than we give it credit for I think so it's kind of a cute a cool thing to to play with too yeah um the tongue (laughs) yeah so um I'm doing a lot of work around holistic biomechanics at the moment, which is how the structure of our body um, really reflects where it is our nervous system is sitting. And the thing about the thing about that that I find so fascinating is that all of us can have very subjective experiences of feeling, sensation, and emotion, and they don't necessarily indicate where it is we are on a nervous system level. The, the only thing that is a true representation, that is an accurate representation of where it is we're sitting is how the structure of our body is positioned in space. So as we are, if we're in sympathetic mode, the structure of our body, the pelvis, the, the rib cage, the, the shoulder girdle, everything changes to support what is considered to be necessary in that moment. And in parasympathetic, the same thing happens. We, we change in support of that. So the the other thing to understand, and this is, a, again, a really deep rabbit hole that I've only just touched the surface of at the moment, is that the breath and the way that we respire it happens on so many different levels. And that when we're in parasympathetic, respiration is happening through the skin. It's happening through different valve systems that are working in the body. It's not just this really functional in-out breath that we think of in terms of how the breathing's working. And so when we're in parasympathetic, it's the valve systems that essentially are um, not mainly in control, but also in control of how how air is being um, taken in and out of the body. Now, the tongue is really associated to our reticular activating system, which is when we're in a place of shock that tends to get kind of frozen, if you like. Again, this is really incorrect terminology for any scientists listening out there going, what is she talking about? I just find this the easiest way to sort of understand it. And we also, are uh, um, the, the brain starts to map in more to sensation rather than location. So to give a little bit of a brief uh, background about that, when we are, um, when the brain is deciding how it is the body needs to be, um, to be safe, there are two different forms of information that it is, uh, giving out and receiving in. So the information coming into the brain is coming from our sensory nervous system, right? So it's deciding what it is that's going on in our environment and the brain is receiving information from the sensory nervous system that's deciding how it needs to be structurally. Now, the motor nervous system is receiving information from the brain based on that sensory input. Is this making sense so far? That then 
that then allows it to make a decision about how it is it needs to be positioned in space. So when we're in a place of feeling really like we've got this, we're kind of what we would consider to be, again, functional, like quote unquote, we're adaptive and responsive to what it is that's going on, our body is constantly moving in and out of parasympathetic and sympathetic. So there's really healthy versions of sympathetic, of course, like getting up in the morning, feeling motivated and so on and so forth. And um, parasympathetic as well takes, takes its place when it needs to. So there are, there are two sort of competing systems, if you like. The most accurate one that the brain seeks to map is location, so the location of the body in relationship to each other. And the other competing system is sensation. Now, when we start to map more for sensation than we do for location, meaning that I start to pay really big attention to how it is my body is feeling and and attaching a certain meaning to that, the sensation maps take the place of the location maps. And what happens is the body starts to receive a limited amount of new sensory information in and is only making its decisions based on past information that it's sending out to the body. And this is where we get stuck in these repetitive patterns of um, feeling the same way, of moving in the same way, of doing the same things. And gradually what happens over time is that the sensory pathways become demyelinated, meaning that we are no longer getting as much input in So we're only basing what it is that we're doing on past references that we've experienced, um, obviously, in the past. (laughs) Does that make sense so far? Yeah. So so if you think about how um, chronic pain, for instance, is a really good example of this. When I feel pain in a certain area of my body, I start to become really sensitized to that area. Each part of my body takes up a certain amount of real estate in my brain. But say I have a tight shoulder all of a sudden my brain starts to pay more attention to my shoulder and that takes up a bigger amount of real estate in my brain than the other areas of my body. So what that means is that area of my body that would have previously been associated specifically to my shoulder, that real estate in my brain now incorporates perhaps my upper arm and my neck and perhaps the front part of my chest. So anytime something associated with that area gets triggered off, the sensation map gets fired up And we send out the information to that area that says we have to be protective, that's going to hurt. We have an anticipation map that gets fired off and so on and so forth. Yeah, following along? Yeah. I haven't talked about this very much, so I'm just hoping that I'm not tripping over my words. (laughs) Then what happens is we compound this cycle where we get protective of what it is that we are doing with our body. And the same thing happens in the case of anxiety. So we start to limit our experience to the very defined zones that we feel like we can control. Now, when we limit ourselves to very defined zones of either emotional experience or a physical experience, we also limit the amount of sensory information that is coming into the body, right? So we don't do things which challenge us in different ways. We don't move differently. We don't uh, take, we don't explore differently we don't do anything which would be outside of the normal range of what we do and so the amount of sensory information in is getting vastly limited uh, limited those pathways become more um, I say demyelinated but basically sort of atrophied like they become weaker less used less less um less informative over time and what is basically really guiding the show is the information of the past experience that the brain has stored that's constantly just firing off these same channels because we no longer have new stuff that allows it to make a different decision about how to be. So when we are, what I did with the tongue, that was a really long explanation to get to that point, was really start to map in 
two different parts of the body. So the brain can start to locate information related to location rather than sensation. Now, the tongue is important because it relates to the reticular activating system. Like I said, it relates to the valves, um, this valve pumps that I said, but it also is something that you don't typically think about. So like if I said, let's focus on your chest or let's focus on your stomach, if you're in a situation of feeling anxious, that would have perhaps had a lot of preloaded material. The tongue typically doesn't have a lot of preloaded material on it and feels kind of like, what is she doing so again there's a novel experience and we're providing two points of reference for the body to start to understand where it is in space and make different decisions about how it might be so for us what we focused on was the um the tendon the lower tendon of the tongue and the front of the teeth and also the outer edge of the tongue and the side of the cheek and we did each of those for 60 seconds and then i think we had you turn your head from side to side and just be curious about what was leading. So whether the tongue led the head turn or whether the head led the head turn. Um, and like I say, there's no right or wrong. There's no, they're not loaded or trick questions. It's just giving your brain different information about how it is it is in space so that it can adjust things accordingly. Um, the more that you sense into that area as well, and I don't know what your experience was with this, um, I think the latter stage of that was asking whether you could feel any movement of the tongue or any pulse of the tongue in relationship to the breath. And that's a signal of the parasympathetic coming back online. There being a sort of like a, it's amazing actually what happens um, in, in that space too um, when you observe things. And I can share another story after it. But did you have any um, experiences with that? No, I couldn't. I, I didn't feel that. Yeah. And that's completely regular as well. It's just, um, it's just bringing, like I said, bringing in that new sensory awareness and new novel awareness to, to what it is that's happening and allowing things to kind of reset. Um, my mother-in-law had a really serious accident last year and she was in a state, um, afterwards of shock and she stayed in shock, basically like nervous system shock for maybe six months where she was just frozen in space. She was, um, her whole body was hunched over. She didn't look up like her. It was sort of like she, she, she didn't notice or realize that she was in this, but everything was, she was moving in a really big block. So there was like, if her eyes turned her whole body oriented to what it was she was, she was seeing. And we started doing this tongue work together as a way of, um, moving her body out of out of shock in a way that felt accessible and it was really interesting because for her like she's 76 this was super out there like she's never done anything like this before um and the the thing that I had on my side was that she really trusts me <laughs> so she lets me experiment on her <laughs> with different things because she knows that um that I've got her best interests at heart and so we did this tongue stuff and for her her tongue got really hot like she, she developed like a really hot tongue and she got like a really strong throbbing pulse in her mouth, which was really interesting. Um, and we also had her put a clock in her room that had a really, um, a really definite tick because that's something that your reticular activating system again can orient to on the outside that allows for regulation to occur. So these are all little ways that you can start to co-regulate with your environment in circumstances where your internal world is feeling a little bit chaotic. Um, I find it all fascinating. Yes. So I have a couple more questions mm. um, <clears throat> pertaining to the other day. So tell me. So tell me why. Um, why the crying? Was crying that just- is a release. Yeah. yeah, crying is a release. It's also a hormonal release. 
Um, and it's just a way for emotions to move through. I think this is part of the, the mystery and the magic that we talk about. It's like when you allow space for a situation to occur, for an experience to occur, A, you realise it's mercurial, like the panic passed, right? It doesn't feel like it's going to pass at the time. That's part of the issue, right? But if you can ground and centre, if you can find a way to ground and centre in the midst of it, you realise the mercurial nature of the experience. And also if you allow the body, if you support the body through the experience. So everything that we did, to my mind, wasn't really layering something on top of what it was. It was a way of accessing your body to allow it to make decisions for itself that allowed it to naturally downregulate. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so if we can allow for the natural intelligence of the body to decide what needs to happen next in order for us to move to the next phase or to move to a better feeling place, we get to that place so much faster. But part of the barrier to that, I think, and I see time and time again, and that I experience time and time again, is the notion of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what is what is able to be where, you know, the container that we're in at that time. So the people that we're with, the space that we're in, like what is going to be met with the amount of um, openness and kind of okayness that allows us to actually just cry if we need to cry or rage if we need to rage. And, you know, like what all of this, this, the rules that we have around what's acceptable and the amount of times we apologize, like, I'm sorry, I'm crying. It's like, it's it's not a weakness it's just like a beautiful way that your body has decided to to move through to the next part and if we can allow that um we we get there faster my body i have noticed if i try to hold it in i get a headache yeah it mutates right that energy goes somewhere yeah Yeah. i cry a lot these days (laughs) yeah yeah i think there's there's so much to this discussion like there's so there's so many rules, there's so many cultural rules, there's so many social rules, there's so many ridiculous assumptions that we have around weakness and bravery and what it means to be either or both. And, you know, I'll tell you a story that's like seems like a slightly random one. Well, probably all my stories are a bit random, but um, when the they were putting together the, the resistance for the um, – the Gestapo that were like, you know, the special forces that were going in, they chose women um, as their chief spies and their chief interrogators. And the reason that they chose them was because they were better under pressure. They found that they didn't give up the secrets as easily as the men under pressure, generally speaking. And one of the observations that was made that was that the women all cried. They all cried before the men but they didn't give up the secrets. And it's like crying is was not, not seen as a symbol of weakness. It was just seen as a mechanism for like being able to kind of move through whatever it was that you were moved through but still kind of hold true to yourself. And it's probably a terrible example in that I'm not suggesting that anyone um, get, run away and join the, the special forces or anything like that, but it's just this idea that we have of crying being a, being a weakness is just really not true. It's a we, we need to really come into relationship with all all of the emotions in a different way, anger, sadness, um, anxiety. And I've got so much to say about anxiety because I feel like it's one of the more socially acceptable emotions to express. And oftentimes when you start to pass it apart, 
um, a lot of what sits under anxiety is frustration, is pissed offness, is like not being supported, is like anger actually for a lot of women. And um, and like I, I had a, in a workshop I was doing the other day, we had to do a women's self-defence course and uh, the one of the as they went around the circle introducing ourselves, one of the women said that as she moves through town, she wants to have a sense of um, steady power, that she wants to feel like a well-fed predator, which is I'm calm and I don't want to do anything, but I want to feel like if I had to do something, I could access that energy. And I thought, oh, that's such a cool description that gave me goosebumps of like, you know, I'm out there with my with my pride of cubs and if I need to, I, I will take you out, but I don't want to have to take you out. <laughs> it's kind of that um, connection to your to your backbone that I'm pretty passionate about. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, about the crying and, you know, you do have to be in a place where you feel like it's, it, you know, with you, thank you, because I, I didn't feel, I, I didn't, I don't think I apologized because it just felt like the most normal thing to do. So Yeah. Oh, no. And it's such a pleasure. And it, it's such an honor to be present for those experiences. It's like, you know, we we I, we have this delusional idea, and I've certainly had this in the past that like your friends or your family or people around you only want to see you when you're you're happy and you know showing up for the world in ways that are joyful. But actually, like I've had friendships where it's been only positive in terms of people only telling me the good stuff and then slinking away when it's bad, and it's so unsatisfying. You're like, I want the whole show. Like, I want this is the reality of being human. Um, and to me, I guess, um, I have so many experiences with anxiety personally and professionally now that literally it just doesn't, it's just is, it just is what's happening right now. And it's not, it's okay. I think that there's a lot of sensitive souls out there that haven't, um, had the skills that we've needed or been met in the ways that we've needed to allow us to meet these sensitivities in healthy ways and we're just starting to come into that as adults and so it's just like dealing with the horses isn't it we've just got to like be kind to ourselves which can be really hard um and meet the experience differently and you're amazing kudos and credit where credit's due like that's a big it's a big thing to be in the, those feelings and you were you were a goddess in graciously navigating those waters even though it might not have felt like it at the time. Oh, thank you. Yes, I I just am so grateful and I I want to share you with everyone. So <laughs> and I did notice so um you have that opportunity for people maybe not to be on the on the on the video with them but um you do have a function um of what is it coach for a day or you have a oh coach on call yeah 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 so you know you are available for people for this and I would highly recommend anybody who's finds themselves in a situation where you need a um somebody like the fantastic Miss Jane to <laughs> oh, walk thank you it's totally totally a great option so yeah check that out on her website Thank you, Robin. I really appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.